0: Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and the person lucky enough to be your guide to UCL's extraordinary and wide-ranging research on coronavirus. If you're new to this podcast, for the past nine weeks, I've been talking to UCL's researchers and staff trying to get to the bottom of the enigma that is coronavirus. And we've looked at it every which way, from life on the front line, What studies of 14th century plague can add to our understanding? A lot, it turns out. There's still time to catch up. You can find all of our episodes on the UCL website or through your favourite podcasting app. We're recording this episode in a week which has seen the funeral of George Floyd, statues toppling, and publication of the long awaited report on disparities in risks and outcomes of COVID 19. So, of course, Issues of inequality, particularly those affecting Black, Asian and minority ethnic populations, had to be our topic this week. To discuss these, I'm joined remotely, of course, and because we're in lockdown, we may have some noises of children by researchers in child and adolescent health, epidemiology and health informatics. So let's introduce them to you. First up, Dr. Rob Aldridge, an Associate Professor and Wellcome Trust Clinical Research Career Development Fellow at the Institute of Health Informatics. His aim in life is to make invisible populations visible through data. There are many cultural and socioeconomic factors that contribute to inequality. And to guide us here, we have Professor Nish Chattavadi, who's director of the MRC Lifelong Health and Ageing Unit and a professor of clinical epidemiology. Her research focuses on cardiovascular disease and diabetes, which disproportionately affect ethnic minority communities. And finally, I'm joined by Dr. Dilan Devarkumar, an associate professor in child and adolescent health and an honorary consultant in public health in the Global Health Division of Public Health England. With him, we'll be talking about how the protest movement sparked by George Floyd's death might be the catalyst for meaningful change in public services. Rob, can I start with you? What are the facts here for the risks of COVID-19 for people of different ethnicities? There's clear
1: and consistent picture that there's an increased risk of getting infected by coronavirus and higher levels of hospitalisation and death across a range of minority ethnic groups. So when we think about in terms of risk of infection, data from the National Surveillance System at Public Health England shows that after accounting for differences in age, coronavirus diagnosis rates are highest in black minority ethnic groups, with men slightly higher than women, and lowest in white ethnic groups. It's important to note here that the way that the majority of these data have been collected until now has been from hospitalised patients, so not those in the community, and we urgently need to uh, fill this gap. So when we think about in terms of hospitalisation and severe illness, we find that 6.2% of new hospitalisation were in age of minority ethnic groups. And yet this same group represents 17.9% of all admissions in intensive care. So quite a difference in terms of the hospital admission and those who end up in intensive care. Similarly, we find that in Black African, Black Caribbean and Black British people, this group accounts for 2.1% of hospitalizations, but a 7.8% of intensive care admissions. And this was some of the early data that we had in the UK that suggested that there was a really increased risk in minority ethnic populations. And back in April, we undertook a study using data from people who were admitted to hospital and diagnosed with COVID and died we accounted for the differences in age and geographical region in those uh, in those individuals admitted to hospital and we found a lower risk of death for people with white irish and white british and ethnic ethnic groups but an increased risk of death for black african black caribbean pakistani bangladeshi and indian minority ethnic groups And evidence from our study showed very similar findings to subsequent data released by ONS and analysis of hospitalisation records from Elizabeth William and others at LSHTM. So in summary, these data describe consistent findings of an increased risk of infection, severe hospitalisation and death across a range of different minority ethnic groups.
0: So we're seeing an increase in infection as well as in severe disease and mortality.
1: Yes, it looks like that's the case. Uh, but but just going back to that caveat, what the data on infection Really, right now, is a little bit um, difficult to interpret because of the fact that it's taken from individuals who are in hospital, and because we weren't able to do community testing. So we need information from studies like Virus Watch, that will be led by Professor Andrew Hayward, who I think you had on a previous co- podcast, to, that will tell us about infection levels and case levels in the community among people who don't need to see, uh, don't get admitted to hospital, to really help us unpick what are the what, what are the case rates and infection rates in the community prior to being getting so unwell well that you need to enter a hospital. Well, I think we need to think about it in terms of the, the differences in exposure, the differences in vulnerabilities and the differences in the social consequences. So if we just think about exposure and take one particular issue, occupation, we know, for example, that Black communities are over, overrepresented in the caring and leisure industries, and Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities are overrepresented in sales and consumer service occupations. These are data from the Office of National Statistics, and we know that a major risk factor for being exposed to this is the, is relates to the number of people you come in contact with, and the kind of levels of protection when you, you have when you're in those uh, occupational roles. So that's so that will put these individuals at an increased risk. And we know that minority ethnic groups work at higher rates in these these groups. Then we think about need to think about the differentials in terms of the vulnerability once you've been infected and you have the infection. And here we know that pre-existing medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease increase your risk. And again, there are differences in these levels of um, of, of, of of medical conditions and the way that they've been treated and the, how well they've been managed until this point that may explain that increased poor outcomes. And then finally, we need to think about the differential social consequences that lead to all of this. So, for example, we know that this is highly related to Socioeconomic wider socioeconomic inequalities and the ethnicity is an important factor in that. So we have data from the Michael Marmot's report that shows this. And we know that low-income and zero-hour contract workers are more likely to, to come from ethnic minority groups. That makes it harder to follow the social distancing restrictions and harder to kind of follow the stay-at-home and not working and working from home advice. And all of these factors combined are likely to explain what we're seeing in terms of the increased risk of infection. Hospitalisation and death.
0: Oh, it's very interesting. We're Sam. The Runnymede Trust uh, published some work showing that for every pound of white household wealth, Pakistani ones have fifty pence, Black Caribbeans twenty pence, and Africans and Bangladeshi's ten pence. So there's a really stark economic divide there.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think um, that that is you know this is brought to the to the fore of those stark inequalities that we've known about and we've been trying to act upon. And I think there's a saying um, that I've heard that I think quite nicely captures this point, that we're all in a storm in this situation, but different people are in different boats. So we're not all in the same boat. And that level of income and the disparities in those income play a major part in the way that you're able to respond to this and take precautions and act in, in, in relation to your risk of infection and an outcome.
0: Yes. And if you're on a you know, zero hours contract and you haven't got much money in the household, the idea of you know, being able to isolate is, is really not possible.
1: Absolutely, it, it's really difficult. And there was a very important piece in Channel Four News last night that showed how actually, um, so migration and, and, and ethnicity is, a, is an overlapping concept. Not uh, not all minority ethnic groups are migrants, but there is a there is a proportion of migrants that, that sit there, and there is a particularly vulnerable group that have no recourse to public funds. And this means that this this group of individuals has no way of. Getting access to the social protection mechanisms that that, that, that a large number of other people are able to access to, and we need to urgently uh, think about that and think about the fairness in that and how we protect these individuals who are who you know are bolstering our society and protecting our society. They're working in the care homes, they're working in our hospitals, and um, we're not able to to support them, and they they are at particular risk of this. And the children of these families are, are, you know, I worry enormously about that.
0: So you're our data king, Rob. I mean, data really is just its so important here. Do you think that the acquisition of this data and this really stark picture that we're getting of disparities revealed by COVID, I mean, it was always there, but revealed um, even more starkly by COVID, is going to have an impact?
1: I think um, we need the data. We need the transparency around the data to highlight these issues. But data alone is nowhere near enough. Um, We need to, um, you know, that there is still some uncertainties around, um, you know, the different mechanisms and the different vulnerabilities. And we must undertake that research to kind of really unpick some of the minutiae around the causal mechanisms by which we're seeing. Um, But I think we shouldn't rely just on the data. So data can only tell us and it can it can shine a light on that and it can you know to go back to how, how i describe my work around and making the invisible populations visible that's why we need the data to do that to shine a light on that and to hold policy and decision makers to account but we also you know need to act now and so and data doesn't doesn't you, we don't need data to do that we know enough to take action to, you know, start reducing the risk of infection and hospitalisation and death in these groups. And we don't need any more data to do that. And we must act. This is an urgent situation that needs to be acted upon now.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, Nish, can I bring you in now? Because you've been researching the impact of disease on marginalised communities long before coronavirus came into view. What have you found in your research that can help explain why people of different ethnicities have such a high likelihood of dying from COVID?
2: There are marked ethnic differences in certain pre-existing conditions, comorbidities, such as diabetes, heart disease and stroke, high blood pressure and respiratory disease, that may offer some insights into why certain ethnic groups are at particularly high risk. Um, so I'm going to talk about the differences in risks there different interrelations between these conditions, gender differences, and differences in age of onset. So many of these ethnic minority groups share an excess risk of diabetes. People of black African descent have about a threefold excess of diabetes compared to white Europeans. In people of South Asian descent, that excess is fourfold. But there's considerable heterogeneity within these groups. So, for example, within South Asians, diabetes prevalence is markedly higher in Bangladeshi um, origin populations than Pakistani folk. And people of Indian origin have the lower rates of diabetes. But I must stress that all these groups have very high rates of diabetes compared to white Europeans. We also see greater risks of high blood pressure in people of black African descent less so in South Asians. And I've mentioned that interrelationships between these comorbidities differ in the different ethnic groups. So for example, diabetes is well known to increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, that is heart attack and stroke. And unsurprisingly, we do see that in South Asians. But strikingly, we don't see that in people of Black African descent. So despite high rates of diabetes and high rates of hypertension, Uh, risks of coronary disease in particular uh, are are lower in people of black African descent and this is especially true in men so um, we're aware that severe COVID uh, appears to affect men uh, much more than women and in general comorbidities are much more frequent in men than women but this is less true in people of black African descent so diabetes, hypertension, obesity much more frequent in in uh, women of black african descent than men so i would suggest that maybe covid disproportionately affects uh, women in, in those in that ethnic group
0: which is fascinating and and one of the things that we've come to see now is that covid is not just a respiratory disease a respiratory infection people are beginning to see it as also a vascular infection so it's getting into the cells that line the blood vessels, and it's causing chaos throughout the body through um, the vascular system, which, of course, if it's in a, a, a already parlous state, um, is going to mean that uh, the infection is more severe.
2: Yes, that's right. And, and one of the valuable um, things about studying uh, ethnic differences and vulnerability to COVID is, as you've suggested, the recognition now that COVID is much more a vascular disease than a respiratory disease Uh, and people of ethnic minority groups uh, generally have lower rates of chronic respiratory disease uh, and in large part because smoking rates are lower in some, not all, but in some of these ethnic minority groups. So it's the vascular aspects that I think are predisposing these individuals to disease in the first place and predisposing some of these groups to severe disease. What about the
0: cultural and socioeconomic issues uh, that uh, underlie the way that people get infected more often? I mean, we were talking, Rob was talking about exposure by occupation, but there's also multi-generational households are more common.
2: Yes, that's right. Well, again, um, these factors differ uh, according to the different ethnic groups. So you have mentioned household structures, for example, that perhaps Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis have large, multi-general households, whereas for Caribbeans, it's largely um, uh, sole individuals. Ethnic um, minority groups tend to live in dense urban uh, environments uh, where you're living perhaps in a block of flats. You have to share a, a lift or a stairwell to get in and out of the flat, uh, so making social distancing much more challenging. And accommodation is generally much more overcrowded. Again, keeping your distance is much harder in an overcrowded environment. So all of these factors contribute uh, from a socioeconomic perspective to greater exposure to virus in the first place.
0: Yes, and we uh, mentioned uh, Channel 4 News, but there was a recent report showing a care worker who was having to share a very, uh, she had a very small uh, room, but she was also sharing her bathroom facilities with about 10 other people in the same household. So it's not really surprising that you get a much greater exposure to uh, to virus that way and and when we say greater exposure to virus it's not just that you're coming across more people so you're more likely statistically to come into contact with an infected person but actually it's about viral load isn't it that you you're more likely to come into close contact with people
2: yes that's absolutely right and particularly people working in the healthcare sector the viral loads are bound to be much higher than they are in the general population.
0: What mitigating factors do you think uh, needs to be put into place?
2: So one of the things uh, I wanted to raise was uh, with the comorbidities, we've talked about the hypertension, the diabetes. These have um, a long, many year, subclinical phase. There are no symptoms. we have an NHS health check system that um, kicks off at the age of 40 where people are checked out for things like diabetes and hypertension. But ethnic minority groups, the age of onset of these conditions is some five to ten years earlier. So by the age of 40, many of these ethnic minority groups have already had their, sub- their, their um, co for many years. So one thing is to um, introduce these health checks at a younger age. In ethnic minority groups i think we should also be aware that once we know that uh, individuals have a burden of comorbidity we may sh- we should offer greater occupational shielding for those individuals and that's already taking place in some healthcare uh, settings
0: but we have to be careful don't we when we i i was talking to a, a group of uh, asian health workers who were very unhappy about uh, the the being shielded from frontline duties because they felt that they were invisible enough as it as it was on the front line in terms of promotion and you know uh, and what they did and that being taken off the front line would mean that actually they were they were then forgotten completely.
2: So in contrast, I've also heard that for a given occupation, say nursing or medicine, that um, the kind of jobs and the kind of exposures that some ethnic minority groups have uh, mean that they come into contact with a much greater viral load than other groups. And it's just the nature of that job. And that's something that uh, the British Medical Association has been very concerned about. So I I think it's a difficult issue. And I think there's a balance to be sought here around the quality of the occupation that people have and their desire to contribute, which is very natural to, to the national effort.
0: So, we've heard from you about different exposures, about underlying disease and social conditions, but it still doesn't account for all the disparities uh, we see, does it?
2: At the moment, we don't have high quality data on either the health or the socioeconomic factors that determine risk of disease in any of the data sets that we might talk about. So far, the data analysis shows that these factors account for some, but not all of that that excess risk. So there are other factors going on.
0: You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. So we're not seeing yet the whole picture, but we'll, let's stay on this theme of how society affects our health, but think more from a public health perspective. Uh, Dylan, who is there in Sri Lanka, fantastic, uh, does racism and discrimination play a part in this increased mortality?
3: Yes, so I guess we should start by acknowledging this very unusual time we're in when the world is engulfed by a pandemic and then is simultaneously woken up to the concept of racism. Um, and we really need to acknowledge the events in the US, the uh, killing of Mr. George Floyd, and uh, all the protests that have happened, the Black Lives Matter movement across the world. Um, but this isn't unusual. There are police homicides every day. Uh, I was speaking to a colleague of mine in Brazil who was saying that in the last year in Sao Paulo, so one city in Brazil, there were 300 police homicides, almost one every day. and These are disproportionately young black men. About two-thirds of the the deaths were in black men uh, when the black population constitutes about a third of the population in Sao Paulo. So this is everywhere, and racism, xenophobia, discrimination happen in every society across the world. But what we're seeing now is on the back of um, the coronavirus, COVID deaths, and the increased mortality, as as has been described, and then this um, killing of Mr Floyd. that These two issues have really come to the fore. I think we need to, I, I guess, start with the basis that, really, there is no biological difference between races, that there's much more variation within one racial group than there is between racial groups. And the differences are largely just appearance, what, what you see physically. So then the question is, why are there differences between uh, racial or ethnic groups? And fundamentally, that comes down to acts of discrimination. And that can work through uh, the social social determinants of health, as have been discussed. So uh, someone's occupation, uh, the kind of accommodation that they live in. Um, But also, racism and xenophobia are fundamental causes of ill health. And that um, goes a little bit further. So as well as working through the social determinants, uh, racism is a persistent health inequality, in that despite changes in diseases, risk factors or other treatments, there are still differences due to racism. This can occur at an individual level, So um, overt or um, kind of covert acts of discrimination towards uh, people of colour, for example, or it can act as a much more structural level. And I guess most of the research is around individual or perceived discrimination. But really, the the elephant in the room is structural forms of discrimination that lead to people of certain groups having um, increased risk of diseases, Uh, shorter life expectancy and this works biologically through a number of mechanisms. Uh, The increase in stress responses, the hormonal adaptations that lead to these risks of uh, non-communicable diseases that were were just discussed Um, and this trauma can be accumulated throughout your life course so from early childhood into adolescence and into adulthood. And it can also be passed from parent to child. So we see this transmission of uh, trauma passing down from, particularly mother to to child. And really, at the root cause of these biological causes is racism. It's it's not about race itself. Racism is the the underlying cause.
0: And it becomes a self-perpetuating vicious cycle, doesn't it? Because you know there are such well-documented examples of. Uh, Racial discrimination and, and, and abuse in terms of health. I mean, you, you think of Tuskegee, you think of all of those kind of um, things in the past. And it becomes a, this vicious cycle in which uh, people become more and more distrustful of health services. And yet you need to improve the health services. I mean, how do we break that that cycle?
3: Absolutely. And uh, I think as Rob was mentioning about migrant groups, so there's a degree of overlap between uh, minority ethnic groups and migrant groups. Um, And and we see that there are barriers to access that prevent migrants from seeking healthcare. And this is in the UK, where we have a national health system. Um, There are charges for migrants that mean that they are less likely to go and seek access. And very complicated system where, you know, even as medical professionals don't fully understand who's eligible or ineligible for free care. And some of these barriers purely act at a, a psychological level where you may just not present early if you're unwell. You may come later. Uh, you may be worried about what happens to your data, whether it's shared with the home office, for example. So these are some of the kind of structural barriers that prevent people Seeking access,
0: and then we do something. We do something really daft. Like when we do testing, uh, we do it in places, drive-through places, where only people who've got a car can use, which was just, which was just ridiculous, and which immediately cut out perhaps you know that some of the most vulnerable people who were most likely to be affected by COVID.
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. If we if we think about use of technology as well and um, we, we assume that everybody has access to kinds of technology to a car for example and proportions of the population don't have this access and it's disproportionately people of colour who don't um, and, and there are other things so cultural factors um, language is one and that's a, a simple um, idea but in terms of cultural competence, are we really reaching the people who we need to? Are we actually having discussions with uh, potentially elderly people who may not know um, all the rules and regulations about who who they can see or who they can't? Um, I think we need to go much further in actually accessing these groups of people so that we can reach equitable outcomes
0: I want to come to you all to talk about what kind of um, recommendations you each have for reducing inequalities in our health system. But before I do, um, Dylan, how can public movements and advocacy be a catalyst for change? I mean we've seen you know black lives matter all those big big movements and I I detect that there's quite a lot of posturing going on I mean you know there's a lot of big companies for instance who've you know added their their name to uh, uh protests but you can't see them doing much uh, change C- can these uh, big movements really be a catalyst for change or are we just seeing a cycle that's going to be repeated
3: Um, I I mentioned that the world has woken up to racism. Um, My worry is that the world will fall asleep in another week or two. I mean, it's true that a number of groups and organisations have come out with statements, uh, particularly around Black Lives Matter, Um, and that's useful if there's some substance behind it. And and I think we have to be positive. I mean, we, we have to use this tide of interest and try and build on it. So in terms of the kind of work that we do, we, we can advocate ourselves and certainly link up with policymakers, but also link up with organisations who work in this field and who have done for a long time. Uh, Doctors of the World, for example. I, I know Rob has worked a well lot with them, uh, Medact and other groups who work in terms of advocacy. Um, and actually today we are launching a new movement called Race and Health. Uh, which was going to come a little bit later, but we've you know, kind of pushed it forward to now. The focus is very much on racism, xenophobia, discrimination, um, and it's it comes from a kind of academic sources, linked to some academic work, the Lancet that will be coming out. Uh, but we want to go much further than that, linked to activists, to advocates, and how see so how can we translate the academic findings into action. How can we help other organisations make arguments? Um, I, I think the the optimist in me would say that, that there hasn't been a movement like this for for a very long time. Um, Angela Davis, the, the very prominent activist from the US, was saying this is the most powerful movement that she's seen in her long and illustrious career. Um, so. I, I think we have to take the interests that we have at the moment and try and push forward in these matters.
0: Okay, let's uh, now go to you all because I, I, one of the things, of course, about the uh, Public Health England disparities report that raised um, so uh, many uh, hackles was the fact that it didn't have any recommendations. So, I want to come to each of you for recommendations as to really what we should do next to reduce inequality. It's some really practical things. Um, Rob, besides making people visible through uh, data, what are your recommendations?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I'd like to just firstly um, also recognise my positionality in this as a white man um, and 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 the fact that there, this is a moment of pain and anger and that you know, I have a unique skill set to bring to this, but we must work together. Um, you know, this is not something that I as as a, as a white as a white man can um, you know, I, I have to be aware of my position in this situation and my privilege. Um, but um to kind of talk about something that I've done a lot of work on in the past, um, as Delan mentioned earlier, um, I I'll just kind of talk about that very briefly. And so I've been working with doctors of the World um who provide care for for people who have been excluded from the NHS and and, um, seek care with doctors of the world. They're a humanitarian health organisation working in London. Who would have thought that that we need a humanitarian health organisation in London? But we do. And um, the work that I've been doing with them over the past few years has shown the really terrible um, situation that Migrants in the u k face, so we looked at the, what we're using the Doctors of the world data We showed that actually there were they saw hundreds of people who were too scared of using the NHS, our National Health Service, for fear of arrest, for fear of having their data shared with the Home Office and being deported, and so when I think about the recommendations that I I would like to really focus on uh, as a kind of an immediate step, and and I I know the others will have other wider things to talk about, I think this is an important subsection that we can do something about really easily, so we can stop sharing that NHS data with the Home Office. we can remove those barriers in access to care so that people are able to navigate and access healthcare services. And we can remove the charges so that right now if you if you have you know, right now people are not probably unable to get a diagnosis in some situations because they aren't, you know, as we've been talking about, coronavirus is this disease that doesn't necessarily present just in the in the kind of cough and fever. It may have unusual symptoms. And people are scared of, of, of getting, uh, seeking healthcare for fear of being charged for that healthcare. And we, we've got, this is a pandemic and an urgent situation. And we should have a blanket removal of those charges whilst we're in this situation, because that will benefit everyone in society.
0: Okay, thanks very much. Um, Nish, um... What are your thoughts? What would you do? If you if I was giving you the magic wand, what would you do?
2: So I just echo a general point uh, that Delan and, and Rob have made that uh, ethnicity is not biology. Um, so this is all about inequalities. It's about inequalities in uh, socioeconomic status that drives Uh, exposure to the virus that drives excess comorbidities. So it affects us all, whatever ethnic group we belong to. It's not just an ethnic minority problem. second, I think, more specific thing I'd say is uh, about comorbidities, uh, that they should, a lot of comorbidities are um, subclinical, undiagnosed. We should extend our ability to diagnose these comorbidities at a younger age in ethnic minority groups. They're also poorly managed, in large part, hypertension is poorly controlled, diabetes is not well controlled. Um, We should increase our efforts through primary care to ensure that blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease is prevented, or if not prevented, treated to the highest possible standard in all groups.
0: And actually, we were talking about the biology there. My background is in uh, genomics. And one of the things that we must make sure is that as we increasingly go towards a personalized medicine, that we represent all groups within um, a, a, a data sets. Uh, I, I think it was very interesting to see that 23andMe suddenly revealed that they've been selling all these um, you know, tests and it's all based on a, on a, on a, on a Caucasian centric uh, data set. And we mustn't allow that uh, to happen because it further disadvantages people. Um, let's come to you, Dylan. I'm giving you the magic wand. Uh, <laughs> you've suggested some things. What would be your top, your top re- recommendation?
3: So I, I think probably similar to the, the previous speakers, um, reducing barriers to access uh, linked with actual engagement and going out and speaking to uh, groups who may be more vulnerable. Um, but, but I also want to draw uh, attention to the many groups who have commented on this. So um, one of the criticisms of the Public Health England Report was that it didn't have recommendations, but had a consultation process. Uh, in the British Medical Journal this week, there is a uh, an article on this and a summary of some of the main recommendations from the different groups. and And it's things like... NHS England should look at changing ways in which, which ethnic minority staff are represented and including decision-making. It's uh, make, taking stratified risk assessments for particular health worker staff. So there are a number of recommendations out there already from these specific groups. Um, I think leadership is important and representative leadership that going forward, you know, it may not be this pandemic, it might be the next one that comes along, um but we need to have leadership within the health service that looks like and that can speak to the whole population
0: yes and we're still in a situation aren't we where the the, the for the GMC for instance the number of complaints against ethnic minority doctors which come from hospitals are uh, you know ridiculously out of uh, uh, kilter and so there are all sorts of discriminatory Um, practices in hospitals which don't allow that leadership which I absolutely agree with you is 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 vital to the future there's so much here to discuss Uh, we're going to have to bring this to a close and uh, I hope that so this is a plea to the people at UCL we'd like to do more on this uh, please because we've only just begun to scratch the surface here so you've all been terrific contributors thank you very much and you've been listening to coronavirus the whole story with this episode presented by myself vivian parry produced by ucl with support from the ucl health of the public and ucl grand challenges and edited by the splendid Keris bradley our guests today were dr rob aldridge professor nish Chaturvedi, dr Dilan Kumar And if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. I hope to be with you again very soon. Bye for now.